listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Two disciples have been on the road to Emmaus, and they have experienced the resurrected Jesus who comes up alongside of them, decides to travel alongside of them, reveal himself to them, have a meal with them, and they are absolutely blown away, and then he vanishes. He vanishes. And what do those two disciples, Cleopas and the other, do? They go and they tell the other 11 apostles and the other believers who were with them because they're absolutely blown away. They were on their way to Emmaus, They got there seven miles away from Jerusalem, and then they take this seven-mile trek back to Jerusalem, 14 miles in one day, because they're blown away at encountering the resurrected Jesus. You'd probably do that too. You'd probably want to tell somebody else if you had an encounter with Jesus. In fact, that's the way a church grows. Did you know that? A church grows by people just like you, ordinary people, just like Cleopas and the other disciple who are on their way to do something else, to go someplace, they encounter Jesus, and Jesus changed their entire plan for that day. They didn't have a plan at the beginning of that day to go to Emmaus and then come back to Jerusalem. Nobody in their right mind, unless you're going camping with me, decides to go 14 miles in one day by foot. This is how a church grows. When people like you and people like me, people like Cleopas and the other disciple have an encounter with the living and true God, with the resurrected Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, you want to tell other people. So they've gone back to Jerusalem and they've met with the 11 apostles and the other believers who are with them and they've told them, we've seen the risen Lord. And then in Luke chapter 24, verse 36, here's where we pick up that story. In Luke 24, verse 36, As they were talking about these things, as Cleopas and the other disciple and probably the 11 apostles and the other believers who are with them, as they're talking about these things, the idea that somebody had encountered the resurrected Jesus, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. We're going to understand the huge, epic significance of that phrase that Jesus says to them in just a moment. But the implication here is that it seems to be a sudden appearance. In John's gospel, this parallel account is recorded where the doors and the windows were closed and Jesus somehow miraculously is able to come through them, is able to dematerialize and then materialize again. I think this is where Star Trek got the whole idea. Somehow, The resurrection body is able to go through doors and windows and walls and to appear and to vanish and to reappear. So as they were talking about these things, the appearance of Jesus, Jesus himself suddenly stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, by the way, a nod 
to again, the historicity of the crucifixion, more detail provided by Luke here that's not provided in the actual crucifixion account. There seems to be an indication, obviously, that Jesus' feet, as well as his wrists or his hands, the same word could be translated there as well for anatomically being able to support a crucified body. The place to do that is in the wrist. The idea is that there were nails used in Jesus' wrists or his hands and his feet. So we get further clarification about what was involved in the crucifixion process here. Verse 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. I mean, what would your reaction be? I, I get it. I understand the resurrection. I understand what nobody else has witnessed before in the history of civilization. No, you'd be like full of joy, full of amazement that your best friend is now with you again. And if he defeated death itself, what bigger challenge does your friend have to face? What bigger challenge do you have to face if your best friend defeated the biggest issue in all of life, which is death? So full of joy, full of amazement, right? This is happening for joy. And they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. This is a beautiful story of the patience of Jesus. Think about this. Jesus not getting tweaked out, not getting freaked out. He understands that the idea of coming back from the dead is something that most people in his day were not used to. In fact, nobody's used to that. Most people in our day are not used to that. That's why Christianity stands head and shoulders above every other religion on the face of the earth because it's about somebody conquering death itself and coming back to life. Literally, not mystically, not spiritually, not allegorically, everything that Luke is laying out for us here is to help us understand that this actually physically literally, materially took place. It's not symbolism. It's actually to help us understand that Jesus has victory over death itself. And if Jesus has victory over death, he has victory over your sin and mine. Remember, in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat this fruit, you will surely die. Adam and Eve lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. So what does the Bible mean that the day you eat this fruit, you will die? Well, on that day, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden on that very day. See, your understanding of death, my understanding of death, is not necessarily the biblical understanding of death. Death physically, physical death, the absence of a heartbeat, the cessation of brain waves waving, that is the result of something else, the first death, spiritual death, which is separation from God. 
So God wasn't lying when he said, the day that you eat that fruit, you will surely die. On that day, he kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. They were separate from God. Spiritual death occurred. And everybody who's been born into the world with a heartbeat and brainwaves is born into this world spiritually dead, separated from God. So it's important to understand that this is the reality. And what Jesus is helping him understand with tremendous patience is, hey, listen, I'm not a spirit, I'm not a ghost. How about something to eat? I don't care what it is. Jesus isn't picky about who cooked that day. And so they had some broiled fish and they gave him some broiled fish and he eats it in their presence. No spirit, no ghost can partake of a material substance like that. So there's something about the resurrection body that we understand that it is literal, it is physical, it can be touched. He showed the disciples, he showed them his hands and his feet. Apparently there were marks there where the nails had been so that there would be an eternal testimony. Get this. When you see Jesus face to face, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior and God, you too, I get chills just getting ready to say it, you too will see the marks in his hands or his wrist and the marks in his feet where the nails were driven as he voluntarily gave his life. Remember, Jesus wasn't murdered. He gave his life because he loves you so much. He wanted you. And if you haven't yet given your life to Christ, he wants you to have a relationship with him. He wants to deal with the spiritual death issue in your life. The separation that you had before you gave your life to Christ or the separation that you still have because you haven't yet given your life to Christ because of sin. And Jesus is tremendously patient with them. Hey, just give me something to eat. Let me show you. Let me help you. Look how patient Jesus is with those who had Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, right there in their presence, if it was me, I'd resort to speaking botched Italian. I would say, hey, stunad, slap him upside the head. What's, what are you, sis? What is wrong with you? It's me. Touch. See. Tactile. Did you forget what I look like? But that's not Jesus' response to them at all. He meets them where they're at and he recognizes you need just a little bit of help. I'm going to be patient with you. Give me something to eat. And we know from other accounts in the scriptures, from other accounts in the scriptures, that Jesus met with them over a period of 40 days after the resurrection and had multiple meals with the disciples. Can you imagine that? Now listen, if Jesus was patient with those who had walked with him and talked with him over a three-year period and then get to see him resurrected the way nobody had ever seen a resurrected body post-crucifixion, the way they had seen it, 
Don't you think he's able to be patient with you and with me? I mean, it's a simple argument from the greatest to the least, from the greater to the lesser. If God Almighty could have patience with those who beheld with their own eyes and touched with their own hands the nail wounds, healed as they now were, don't you think he can understand when you're troubled and when you doubt something about the nature and the character of God? See, one of the reasons why we struggle, just in the same way that the disciples struggled, when Jesus says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? It's because they didn't really understand the resurrection. And whenever you don't understand the resurrection, you're going to have troubles and doubts, and you're going to worry in your life. How many of us are recovering worriers? Come on now, we all are. Would you please give me a break? We're all recovering warriors. We all worry about this or that, whatever it might be. You have your hot button that you worry about. You can trust God in all these other areas, but in this particular area, fill in the blank, you struggle with trusting God. We all do. We all do. Come on, let's be honest. Trouble and doubt in that area is a result of losing sight of the factual reality of the resurrection. If God the Father could raise Jesus from the dead, there is nothing bigger in your life than that accomplishment. And discovering or perhaps rediscovering for the very first time the reality of the resurrection will help your troubles and your doubts and your worries dissolve. This is one of the reasons why God has given us his word, the Bible, because he knows that we are prone to be troubled and to doubt. And how much more so for those of us who weren't there in the literal physical presence of Jesus. Oh, I would love to go back in time and to just give me one of the nail marks. I just would love to put my finger right through the wrist of Jesus and say, How is this possible? But God knows we can't go back in time. But one day we'll go into the future and we will behold that very same Jesus in the same way that Cleopas and the other disciple did. And we will behold that same Jesus the way the 11 and the other disciples did. And we too will be full of joy, full of an overwhelming happiness in the same way that Don Warner, who is now no longer with us, is now in the presence of that same Jesus and is now more alive than he ever was this side of eternity. God understands that you will experience trouble and doubt. And he is as patient with you. Not tweaked out and freaked out. He's as patient with you as he was with the disciples who had him in their very midst. Remember that it's not the fact that you are holding on to God. That's not the reality. It's that God is holding on to you. It's not that you sought after God or that I sought after God, but that God sought after you. 
While we were sinners, Christ died for us. You don't even understand your need. God opened your mind, revealed to you the truth that you needed a savior, that you couldn't save yourself. That wasn't something that you came to of your own conclusion, of your own power, of your own enablement. God, in his mercy and his grace to you and to me, revealed to you the truth that he came to seek and save the lost. Nobody seeks God. Nobody goes after God. Nobody understands the truth about God unless God opens up their minds and reveals to them the truth. And so you might find yourself in a position where you don't understand the truth. One of the greatest things you can do is to ask God, God, help me to be open-minded to you. Help me to understand the truth about you. I remember when I first came to know Christ and I was in our kitchen at 300 Bickle Road in Washington, New Jersey, in our farmette, on a 26-acre farmette. I was there in the kitchen with my father and I was sharing the gospel with him and I said, Dad, you don't understand. I remember from catechism being raised a Catholic. I remember reading the biblical accounts because in Catholicism, you're exposed to the gospel. You're exposed to the Bible. Often what's missing in the Catholicism, often what's missing in the catechism is the connecting of the dots that somebody needed, needs to come along and say, listen, simple knowledge of the Bible doesn't save you. You need to personally, individually give your life to this Jesus that you're reading about in these scriptures that you're hearing. That's what's important. And I remember saying to my father, dad, you don't understand when I was reading the biblical accounts and when I was hearing the biblical accounts before, it was like reading a different language. And then when I gave my life to Christ, when I gave my life to Christ, I would read some of those same passages. God even used Dear Abby in my own life. I was reading Dear Abby. Somebody wrote in about Leviticus about the green and the red mold. And I went to those passages, scratched my head and didn't understand them, just like you probably don't understand them. But I remember saying to my father as we stood there in the kitchen, Dad, now when I read those passages, it's as if the veil has been removed. I can understand the Bible in a way that I could never understand it before. And I remember my father putting his hands down to his side. He wasn't saved at that particular point. He got saved nine days before he passed away. And then got to see the same Jesus that we're reading about today with the nail holes in his wrists and his feet. My father's more alive today than he ever was in his 79 years of walking on this earth. He put his hands to his side as we were in that kitchen and he said, with his head down, and he shook his head to the left and to the right and he said, hmm, that's never happened to me. It couldn't happen to him because he was dead in his sins, dead in his transgressions. His mind wasn't open to the truth of the scriptures. And your mind, your heart might not be opened up to the truth of the scriptures yet. You might not yet know Jesus in that particular way. One of the most significant things you can do is to pray, God, open my mind up to the truth about you. Open my heart up to the truth about you. You might say that you're a tolerant person. You might say that you're an open-minded person. But if you are close-minded to the biblical Jesus, you're not an open-minded person. 
If you're closed off to what the scriptures teach about Jesus, you are an intolerant person. The most tolerant, open-minded thing you can do is to be open to what the full counsel of God's word teaches about the only Jesus that there really is, the real Jesus. There are many counterfeit Jesus out there, but there's only one real Jesus, and he's brought to us courtesy by the scriptures, courtesy of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. That's where you'll get the real understanding about the real Jesus, the only Jesus who really exists. So Jesus eats some broiled fish. He takes it and he eats it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you. Look at the authority here. Who is Jesus to put emphasis and weight on his own words? Who's involved in ministry that can say, listen to what I say? No, the only way that you can effectively be involved in ministry is if you are continually. And by the way, every Christian is supposed to be involved in ministry. Every Christian is supposed to be involved in ministry. Every Christian who is a disciple is involved in ministry. And your objective as a disciple is to speak the word of God. Only Jesus can say, these are my teachings, putting himself on equal footing with God the Father. It's a powerful thing that Jesus is doing. He said to them, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The light bulb went on for them. And they took a quantum leap forward in their understanding of Jesus being the anointed, the appointed, the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the anointed, the appointed, the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. The power of God being made available to them. We understand that this is the Holy Spirit when we read the book of Acts, which by the way is the next book that we're going to go through, verse by verse, the entire book of Acts. And we're going to understand how Christians live in light of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's exciting just thinking about it. But when we read Acts chapter 1, we understand that this power from on high is the result of the Holy Spirit coming into the life of the believer to live the kind of life that would otherwise be absolutely and utterly impossible. We must understand that as Christ followers, as disciples, we are designed by Almighty God. Listen to this. Destined by Almighty God, empowered by Almighty God to do the impossible. Power from on high. Now, one of the tragedies that's happened today in the United States of America is that we misunderstand the gospel and we've refashioned the gospel in our own likeness, that the power of God is now 
simply something we add to our lives to make ourselves more successful, more attractive, more prosperous. No, the power of God in the Bible is always given by God for one purpose and one purpose only. And it is also, by the way, the purpose of your life and of mine. The power of God is always given for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom and his agenda. And so when Jesus says, you're going to be given power from on high, the implication here is that I'm passing the baton to you. Greater things will now you do than I did. And we see that manifest in the book of Acts. When Peter, the guy who denied Jesus not once or twice, but three times. Peter, the guy who says, hey, Lord, let's make a tabernacle for Moses and a tabernacle for Elijah and a tabernacle for you. Peter, the guy who doesn't get it. Peter, the guy who's out there fishing, depressed after the crucifixion. It's that guy who's a lot like you and me. A guy who failed not just three times in denying Jesus, but who continually didn't understand who Jesus was, but Jesus understood who he was. Jesus understands who you are. Jesus understands who I am. It's Peter on the day of Pentecost who preaches one sermon and 3,000 people get saved. Jesus' entire ministry of three years had about 500 believers. That's what it means when Jesus says, greater things will you do. And what great things God does through imperfect, mortal people, flawed people like Peter, flawed people like you and me. God's power is made perfect in weakness. One of the things that we need to understand, one of the things that we need to appreciate is that the power of Almighty God, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is given to you as a disciple, given to you as a disciple, given to you as a disciple, given to you as a homeschooling mother, giving to you as parents who have children in the public school, given to you in your business world, given to you in your flawed, stumbling marriage, given to you in the struggles that you have in your financial resources, given to you with those same besetting sins that you wish would die once and for all and keep coming back and whispering, keep coming back. They seem to not want to let go. God uses people like you and people like me, people like Peter, to manifest his great, dynamic, explosive, supernatural power to build and advance and expand the only kingdom that will endure forever. And God knew and God knows that you needed, you need, I needed, I need something apart from ourselves, supernatural, God-given power. His name is the Holy Spirit. 
to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible. There is nothing that you are facing that can prevent you from advancing the kingdom of God and the glory of God being manifest in your life unless you forget what God has given you, which is supernatural power from on high. This is the whole point. You do not have what it takes. I do not have what it takes. We do not have what it takes to do supernatural, God-sized, dynamic, unbelievable things for the glory of God without the enablement of God. And God knows that. That's why at the first coming of the Holy Spirit that Luke is writing about here in recording the words of Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit had to have a first arrival in the church. That arrival came on the day of Pentecost. And we'll get to that when we look at the book of Acts. God understands that you're just a mortal I'm just a mortal. You have things that you struggle with. I have things that I struggle with, just like the disciples who were troubled and doubted when Jesus was right in their midst. How much more do we have troubles and doubt? God knows that. That's why God gave you the same Holy Spirit that he was about to give them. That's why God will give you. You say, well, I've got some junk in the trunk. I've got stuff in my past. Welcome to the family of God. We've all got spiritual junk in the trunk. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God needed and need the supernatural enablement of God to come into our lives, courtesy of the Holy Spirit, so that we begin to live life in a fundamentally different way. The power of God is not so that we can live our own lives, me, myself, and I, and do whatever I want to do for whatever my agenda is. That is a false gospel that's being presented today. The Holy Spirit is not God's remedy for your personal success story. God cares about his success. God is consumed and concerned about his success and his agenda, so much so that he would give his Holy Spirit to you so that you can succeed in joining him in his agenda. You are successful in business for one purpose and one purpose only, not to have a nicer car, not to have a nicer house, not to go away on vacation more frequently. And I just came back from vacation and loved it and had to repent of my perpetually sinful thoughts as I schemed about how could I perpetually be on vacation? How could we live stream the sermons from down here in the beach so that I don't have to be there on the stage at 1405 Seven Valleys Road. The Holy Spirit is given to the believer for the purpose of glorifying God and advancing his agenda. That's the purpose. All success, quote unquote, in your life and mine is measured in comparison. Listen to this. All success in your life and in mine, in every church, in every family, 
is measured in comparison to the degree to which God is glorified and his kingdom agenda is advanced. Did you know that your marriage exists to glorify Jesus Christ, to be a representation to all of the world? This is what it looks like for God to love the church. This is what it looks like for the church to submit to and to love God. It's no wonder marriage is under attack today. It's one of the primary object lessons that God Almighty has given us to understand the glory of God. There it is again, the kingdom agenda of God. God invented marriage. God invented sex and sexuality. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so one of the greatest things that needs to happen in each of our lives is to appreciate the power of the Holy Spirit and the purpose that you and I are here for while we await the opportunity to see the resurrected Jesus and touch his hands and touch his feet and maybe touch his side as Thomas did. The purpose of your life, the purpose of my life is to give glory to God and to advance his kingdom agenda. Every other pursuit in life is secondary and subservient to that. There is no area of life that we can separate from the advancement of the glory of God. Your marriage is either advancing the glory of God and the kingdom agenda of God or it's stuck. A church is either busy doing things. I know I'm speaking in black and white terms right here. There is some gray in between, but I'm going to be a little bit black and white for a moment. A church either has programs and busyness or a church's programs and busyness are for the purpose of making disciples, people who are consumed and concerned with the glory of God and the kingdom agenda of God. A family exists. A business prospers for one reason and one reason only so that people can look at your family and say, God. People can look at your business and say, God. People can look at what's happening in your life and say, God, 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 God. The supernatural power of God is at work in your life. Everything about your life. When I hear you say things with your mouth, I hear about the glory of God. I hear about the prioritization of the kingdom of God. When I see the decisions that you're making in your life that you could have a bigger house, you could have a nicer car, you could go on vacation more frequently here, there, whatever the case might be, but for some reason you don't. Why is it that you don't? Because you have a greater purpose. You were created for a greater purpose and it's wrapped up right here in Luke chapter 24. The great purpose for your life and for mine is the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom so much so that God would give you that third person in the Trinity himself even as he gave Jesus himself that second person in the Trinity the son is a sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins and mine 
God would give his Holy Spirit so that you can now do what you otherwise could not do. Life groups grow. Life groups multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. The Holy Spirit has been given to every member of every life group, not just the facilitators, to go and invite people to your life group. There is no reason why these life groups should not be growing and multiplying. And you know what? You might say, I don't know how to lead somebody to Christ. I don't know how to invite somebody. Neither did Peter. I'm pretty sure that on the day of Pentecost, in that morning, Peter didn't wake up thinking, how can I preach a sermon that's so well-crafted and so eloquent and so persuasive that I could outdo Jesus through your ministry? No, it's the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit has control of your life, you will do the impossible. Haven't we had enough of the possible in the church? Haven't we seen enough of what mere mortals can do? Is anybody interested in what the almighty, immortal, eternal, infinite God can do? Brothers and sisters, that is what it is all about. It is about God getting such a hold of your life and mine as disciples of Jesus that we begin to do the absolutely impossible because it is not, in the end, your story. It is not, in the end, my story. It is not, in the end, even our story. In the end, it is all God's story. It is God's glory. It is God's kingdom. And God has simply given you and me the opportunity to join him. God has given you and me the power to do the impossible, to point people to Jesus Christ and to build the only kingdom that will endure forever. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Looking up.